Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me today. Today, my guest is Sarah Carter. And if you're not familiar with Sarah, Sarah is a mixing and mastering engineer based out of the UK. She's also an online educator as well, who runs a great YouTube channel teaching music production as well. She's worked with a variety of artists from Crowded House, The Cure, Adele, The Black Keys, Kareen Bailey Ray, Katie Tunstall, a whole bunch of amazing people. And she just has a amazing amount of knowledge of what it's like to work in the radio industry and in the studio side of things, and especially working quick because she did a lot of work on the BBC Live Lounge sessions. And if you've ever seen any of those, they are pretty impressive. And as you'll hear in this interview, when she describes how these sessions work, it's a lot of fast work and you know it requires a lot of attention to detail and i think you're going to find that part of the conversation very fascinating but yeah we get into a lot of great conversation around her time working at the bbc uh her time working on the live lounge and working with live off the floor recordings and some ways that you can prepare for those to get the best experience and to get the best quality sound we also get into some deeper stuff which i think is really important to talk about regarding imposter syndrome because i know a lot of people out there listening to this really have a hard time with imposter syndrome and feel Feeling like your work doesn't compare to the quality of work of other people's and, you know, how that affects you. And Sarah shares her own experience with this and how she's learned to combat that and move forward and actually start to pick up momentum to be ignited by this again and feel really excited by it. Um, so Sarah shares some great tips in this episode. I know you're going to find this episode super, super helpful. So let's just jump right into the interview. Sarah Carter, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for asking me to uh, to come on the podcast. Of course, you're doing so much amazing stuff. So it's always great to have people on here that, you know, I really respect and that I know are absolutely crushing it. So uh, thank you for, for being on. I really do appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. For people who might not know your background and how you got into music, how you got into uh, mixing and all the stuff that you're doing right now, can you give us that background? Yeah, I've been into, I've been an audio engineer now since I, uh, about 2003 professionally I would say um, and I started out my career with the BBC in London and I worked across all their main um, network radio channels so we're talking about uh, really well-known radio stations in the UK like Radio 1, Radio 2 and Six Music and um, also you know I because the, the diverse range of the coverage of the BBC. I worked on everything from documentaries to uh, radio dramas to recording and mixing music, which of course is um, the direction I really wanted to go in and was very fortunate enough to be chosen by the BBC to do that. Um, and I got to work from the uh, Maidervale Studios, which is awesome, and worked with some really amazing people. And um, it's only been recently, I guess, in the last five years where I decided to take up mixing um, in a freelance capacity and uh, really work with bands, unsigned bands uh, all across the world to help them get quality mixes that stand shoulder to shoulder with the bigger names on the playlists on, you know, that they're competing on like Spotify and Apple Music and all the others. So that is is um, 
that's what I have been doing. And then in the very recent times, I've gone more into education in terms of helping people mix music at home on their own equipment um, to get pro results. So I've kind of shifted a bit from what originally started out as a hobby in the in the 90s to going pro to then leaving audio for a, for a spell um for a bit of a career break and a and a rest uh to get back into it again in around about 2017 which was a bit of a shock because it things were quite different in 2017 when I left the BBC in 2009 um the technology had moved on somewhat so <laughs> I had a bit of catching up to do um, but I'm there now and I love it. And that's the sort of thing I want to help other people get their head round as well. That's amazing. Yeah, I imagine that even just getting in with the BBC, that, that's got to be a pretty tough feat to, to accomplish. Like, I imagine there's a lot of competition to get into that kind of job, right? Yeah, yeah. There were, from memory, somewhere between six and 700 applicants for the job. And wow. um, I felt as a almost it was like my last chance to get into professional audio as a, you know because I was really looking to career change because at that time I was about uh, I think I was about 32 or 33 years old so I was not a spring chicken coming into the uh, into the audio world and there were lots of young younger people coming out of university with degrees so I had a lot of competition and so when the BBC job popped up after I'd had a few failures trying to get get in at professional studios, um, I really felt as though it was my chance. So I went I went for it in a big way, and learned how to smash an interview really. <laughs> um, and you know, it was re- I spent about a week filling in the like a, like it was a full time job for the week was to fill in the uh, application form because if you don't even get an interview then that's the end of it isn't it you know of course so I just my focus my goal was to just get an interview and then I'd worry about the interview afterwards (laughs) so um, yeah out of six or seven hundred applicants I got I got an interview which turned out to be three interviews uh, and again still highly attended by you know lots of keen people so I then had to kind of look how to smash an interview then. For sure. Um, and, but I put all my effort into it and I really wanted it. And um, they were taking on six studio managers is the title that the BBC gave um, trainee sound engineers for the radio. For, for radio. So... Um, I got one of the six spots. I was the only girl, which was... which. I mean that that's not as unusual as it sounds these days because when I joined the BBC I was astounded by the amount of women engineers that were there working you know it was it was probably oh I don't know 75 25% split there was loads more women there than I expected that's great and they were so good brilliant engineers so um, that was quite comforting, actually, going in uh, to find that. So they were all quite surprised that I was the only female on, on the intake that, t- that time round. Um, so I had, a, you know, five other guys to kind of 
<laughs> to deal with through the training, um, which is fine because, you know, I, I my first job was in the motor trade, so that's with nothing but fellas. And then, you know, I get into audio and that's probably and it's much the same. So, uh, so it was it was completely fine. Yeah. But it sounds like at the end of the day, like you you seem to really grasp the concept of making a strong first impression and, you know, making it your goal to like, you know, go in, do the absolute best that you can show, show what you're confident with, show what you're capable of. And that itself is, that's like, that's the best thing you could do, right? Like that's, you know, as far as like getting a job or whether it's like attracting people to work with you or, you know, just like any, any sort of situation, it's like wherever you can provide value to people and make it known that you have that, or at least that you have that drive to push yourself to learn it. If you don't know it, you know, like that goes a long way as far as instilling confidence in other people so that, you know, they, they choose to work with you. That's really important. Yes. Yeah. And no matter what the competition is, like, as long as you're continuing to put forth that energy, you're going to get, get good response from it you know yeah yeah I mean you know I put in a lot of effort in um as I said there was there were a couple of technical interviews as well where um you know we had we were given various errors or faults on audio recordings that we had to identify and uh then there was a mock radio studio working with a reel-to-reel tape machine well, three of them actually in a in a line and working to a script and moving between the tape machines at the right times. So, um, I mean, that I couldn't prepare for. I've never I never used a reel to reel tape recorder in my life, you know. Um, but the uh, certainly because of the hobby, being a hobby for so long, and because I'd read, it felt like every book on the topic. Uh, you know, Sound on Sound magazine. Uh, then, I mean, whether I needed to go to college or not, I don't know. But I felt, for me, to honestly present myself as a professional audio engineer, I needed to know the foundational topics. And so, for me, um, in order that I actually did the work, I felt as though I needed to attend a class. I needed to go to a um, you know, a, a specialist college. And I found that SAE uh, is just renowned for their audio engineering courses. They had a studio in London and I, I signed up, paid my money, <laughs> uh, eye-wateringly, and um, went all in on the course. It was a part-time course over 18 months. I went every Saturday and, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed learning everything about sound and electronics. Um, I mean, it, I won't pretend to understand all of it, but <laughs> what it did do was just give me a deeper understanding of the equipment to know why it worked a certain way or how to get the best out of it. And I think that's really important. And I, I think a lot of people starting out are missing that step. You know, it's so easy now to consume content on um you know probably youtube and then uh various forums on the internet and memberships and uh what have you i think what can happen is that 
beginners can find themselves jumping into a topic in the middle of it and not realising it. And so what happens then is they, they don't either don't grasp the concept or they think they do, but then they don't get the results they're expecting. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I um, am very aware of and want to make sure that um, I get across in my tutorials and in my courses so that people can get that ground in and then they can make better decisions, more informed decisions about mixing. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, mix faster if that's your goal um, or or not. If it's not, then but at least you can um, be more confident in your work because you can stand by your decisions. For sure. Well, it's kind of like what you and I were talking about before we started recording uh, that whole idea of, you know, even as much as you and I both teach people how to how to improve their mixes it's like you know sometimes the recording part of it is the part that people are dropping the ball and you know you can only perfect things so much in the mix and so you have to you have to understand some of those earlier stages and you do you have to realize that in order to kind of put this whole thing together it takes all of the right ingredients along the way and if you just focus on one thing it's not gonna you know it's like it's like learning how to bake a cake and all you want to do is like be the icing specialist or something like that yeah, you know it's like yeah. you can you can have a shitty cake and put the best icing on it doesn't matter it's still gonna be awful right so it's 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 the same thing and yeah absolutely like people definitely need to pay attention to those earlier stages and really feel um you know see, see it all the way through in order to actually get those results yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I love and I love your your attitude about all that stuff and just like how you push yourself to learn this stuff. So when you went to SAE, was that while you were at the BBC? Like did you get the BBC job first and then jump into SAE or was that kind of no. in preparation for the BBC thing? No, it well, that was in preparation. I didn't feel as though I could put myself up for any position in a studio without having some sort of um qualification. I don't know whether that's I, I don't know if it's the same nowadays, but um with my background it's just kind of how I expected what I felt was the right way to go about it really and to feel uh justified in myself to put myself up for jobs and for and for positions in studios and also I mean it it just goes to prove to them that you are committed and you've you've got some skin in the game you know you've put your money down um you've done the course you've got the you've got the uh, degree or the certification or uh, diploma whatever it is you've gone for so you you've proven that you can actually um learn and do the work uh to a point where you know you you've gained this certificate so i it just it was a no-brainer for me i had to, i just had to do it so it involved a move uh at the time i was living in the middle of in the midlands in england uh, which is in the middle of England, as the name suggests. Um, uh, so I had to move down south to London. And uh, my partner and I moved down to Basingstoke, which is in Hampshire, which is about an, um, an hour uh, an hour or so away from London. So it's commutable. Um, so that's kind of how it all happened, really. Things just fell into place. Um, and it was made very easy for me to be able to to do that move, to sell my house, to, you know, I got on the course, um, passed the entry to get on the course, and, you know, it um, it wasn't plain sailing, but it, uh, it happened 
easier, I think, than I expected. For sure. And it sounds like, I mean, again, you you prepared yourself by doing the work and you actually you actually did the work. And that, that's the important part of it is that like, mm. you know, it sounds like you you didn't just go to school like you were you were working on it. You were like, you know, like yeah. you said, like working on getting the application perfect and all that stuff. Like you, there's there was clearly more of an effort than just like I'm going to go to school. I'm entitled to this job, which yeah. I feel like a lot of people do have that that thought and it's like no that's not how it works like you have to prove yourself you have to put yourself out there and like yeah. actually work for it um and clearly you absolutely did um i'm curious to know when you got that job at the bbc because i know a lot of radio like I- i've never worked in radio myself but i do know that a lot of the equipment that is in that field is often very different than like in, in the studio world sometimes like maybe maybe because of what you were doing you were actually working at a studio might have had a little bit more but did you find that you were like learning a lot of new tech while you were there? Um, yes. I mean, certainly the broadcast side of things, uh, getting, you know, audio out into the world, uh, into the airwaves and all that that entails was uh, quite a learning curve. Um, it's, it's more than just getting signals into a desk. It's understanding how they get there in the first place as well to make sure that they do um so there's lots of patch bays everywhere and plugging things in and out of other things and uh, it um yeah but, but like anything else you you get to know the tools you work with and so it, it becomes easier and you, you know you learn it over time but the bbc have a terrific training um uh, sort of course i guess it's quite long and in-depth it was a residential course for about six weeks and then you do that before you can even go anywhere near a radio studio I think even when I got when we first got started our first day um it was going to be at least two weeks till we were able to even touch any piece of equipment we were just there and just were put on a chair sorry we'll put on a chair on the back of the studio um and just sat there and watched and listened, which is great, actually. That actually suited me. Um, it's kind of like almost getting an internship at a studio to some degree where you're just watching and observing. Yeah, yes, yeah. And so uh, so that was a great introduction to it for me. And then it, the great thing about it was that you, you got to see everything that you learned on the training, you could see actually in action. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really great. So things started to click into place then. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was fun. It was a fun time, interesting time, and a very scary time as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I forever had the fear of dropping off air. You know, dead air. Yeah. I had that fear of uh, being in charge of a um, of a radio program, and then. It falling off air and it was going to be down to me to get it back on air. That was my fear. Oh, thank goodness. It never, ever happened to me. Um, whenever it did happen, there were lots of questions asked. So um, I was thankful that it that it didn't uh, curse me in any way. Yeah. I'm sure it takes a lot of accumulation of effect or of, uh, of problems for that to happen. You know, yeah, it's not just one yeah. thing that takes it all down. 
Yeah. But but it also goes to show your attention to detail as well, because I'm sure, you know, you have you always have to be aware of all of the things that are going on, Everything all the surroundings. Going on. And, yes. Yeah, yes. And like, you know, what the person before you did and how you like, you know, yes. I'm, you know, I guess it's like that in a studio, too. Right. If you're ever sharing a space with someone, it's like they may mess around with all the settings on all all, all the compressors and EQs and stuff. And you, you just have to learn to, like, you know, watch your tracks, pay attention to the those details so you can pick up where where you're supposed to be, you know. Yes, yeah. I mean, we always we always had to zero the desk before we left the studio, um, but um, the uh, and I guess if you were mindful that you'd done any crazy settings on any outboard, you would have to you'd reset those just to be kind. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that was an aspect actually of the job I didn't particularly enjoy, and that was moving around different studios, even though they were all built to kind of mirror each other and be the same in essence. Um, they all had their own little quirks, mm. uh, particularly as certain studios were inhabited by uh, DJs um, every day. And so there would be settings that would be specifically for them that uh, you had to kind of work around sometimes. And uh, yeah, I just found I much prefer learning a set of equipment that is, you know, that is mine, essentially, that I've put together, that I've built, and I know where everything's been plugged. Uh, and, I, and I found that a bit uncomfortable at the BBC, having to move around different studios. It wasn't just the radio studios, per se, or made a veil. They had lots of little kind of offices that were set up as studios as well. So I mean, you can imagine sat the BBC Broadcasting House. There were there were dozens, oh, if not, I can't even imagine. There must have been so many different little satellite studios on various floors of the of Broadcasting House. Um, yeah, it was. I just found it all really uncomfortable. I just I, I, I like um, a creature habit, I suppose. So I like to know what I'm dealing with. Um, to feel properly comfortable. Of course. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I agree with you. I think there's something very comforting to just working in your own space where, you know, you know, it, it just it's set up the way you want it to be. And, yeah. you know, I, I feel that way. Like even when I work out of a, a different studio to like record things, I almost always say like, OK, cool. Well, we recorded everything here. I'm taking it back home. I feel so much more comfortable mixing at home like because I work there every day. Everything's set up the way I want, you know, and, and I think there's something to be said for that, I mean, when you know your surroundings, you know, you know what is going to allow you to work more efficiently and all that kind of stuff. Like put yourself in that situation as much as as much as possible to you get the best results. Right. I mean, yeah, it's obviously totally. a little different when you're working at a radio station. You, you have no choice but to do it. But um, but clearly, like, you know, as your career has progressed and, and to where you are now, you're 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 definitely in a lot more of a comfortable situation now and working out of a consistent place. Yes, I'm able to control my surroundings, really. So. Yeah, that's that's me in a happy place. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> make myself that made myself sound a really controlling kind of. No, I I totally get it. it it's, it's not controlling <laughs> at all. It's just it's comfortable. It's it's it, yeah. You, you trust things a lot more when you work in the same environment all the time. Yeah, and it it just makes your job a lot easier. It makes it makes the end result a lot better too because of that. Yeah, it kind of frees up a certain portion of your brain to be able to use it somewhere else. You know. Um, uh, usually, hopefully, on more creative endeavours. 
for sure. Uh, than I than trying to find bugs or you know problems. <laughs> well, one one question that I did want to ask you about the radio side of it because I, I do find it very fascinating is you'd kind of mentioned earlier the idea of like you know being aware of the signal and how it gets trans you know uh, transmitted and all that kind of stuff. One thing that I've always heard about is that. Uh, when it comes to radio stations is that they tend to compress their signal quite a bit to, for transmission. And I'm curious to know, like, is that are those compression settings something that is like a broadcast standard? Is that something that is kind of just based on station to station? They kind of dial in their own settings. Like what if someone were thinking of trying to create radio ready mixes? Like what what are those things that they need to consider knowing that the radio is going to, going to adjust their signal after the fact? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um Yes, each network had its own um, compression settings or limiter settings. Um, it's it's a box of tricks called the Optimod that is across every network um, before it goes out uh, to air. And basically it's there just to catch, um, just to stop breaking the transmitter equipment, basically. But each is set very differently. So Radio 1 is is pop music, dance music. Uh, you know, it's what all the kids are listening to. So the music tends to be really loud, really compressed. Radio 2 is more middle of the road, uh, kind of, but still with pop, pop tunes as well, but it's slightly, slightly less compressed. Radio 3 is classic, classical music. So there's very little compression there. And um, then you've got Radio 4, which is a speech network. So again, um, a little bit there. But it's just there just to stop breaking the equipment further down the, down the chain, uh, as far as the transmitters are concerned. But yeah, in terms of wanting to make a radio-ready mix, um, I don't think that's worth th thinking about because... Every mix that gets played out on the radio has been mastered. So um, I think if you take your mix, either learn about mastering yourself and master your own mixes, um, or you actually, you know, use an external mastering engineer, which is a great decision to do because not, it's not expensive to get a single mastered then you really you don't need to concern yourself with reverse engineering your sound to sound great on the radio um, because it you know most people are listening to I, th I mean I don't know how many people are listening to radio these days anyway people aren't people just you know getting Spotify up on their phone and you know listening to streaming services uh, the radio obviously still exists and yes, we have that terminology, don't we, Radio Ready Mixers? Whatever that means. Because I think that's just a mix. <laughs> I think it's just an ordinary just an ordinary mix. Just mix it, you know, to um, reasonable levels in terms of loudness. Send it to a mastering engineer or do a little bit of research and master it yourself. Get it a little bit louder in that process. Um, and you're good. Don't worry about... You know, the radio stations are going to smash it anyway. If anything, I would say it's, 
you know, probably less is better. Uh, you know, keep as much dynamic range as possible in your mix and in your master, because if you are intending for it to go out on the radio, that dynamic range is going to get squashed. Um, so, and the more you squash the dynamic range, the more it, the, your record will sound small and um, narrow. So, yeah, try and keep as much dynamic range as possible in your mix and in your master and you should be good to go. I agree with that whole answer there. I, you know, I think, yeah, that idea of radio ready mixes, it is it is kind of a a weird term to use to some degree, because I, I agree it, it is more to do with just like creating a a good mix. Yeah. It's, just a, it's like creating a, a professional sounding mix. I think that's what it what it what it means. I don't know quite where the terminology came from. Um, but um, it's in easy, it's instantly understandable. You know, you hear that term and as a lay person, you would go, yeah, that's what I want. I want my yeah, I want my mix to sound like it's come off the radio. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's just something to do with like, yeah, it, you, you want it to be able to compete with the quality of the music that's out there. And and the quality that you hear on the radio is often considered the best quality. You know, it's the cleanest. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a well-balanced thing. It, it's it's you know, you're not hearing things that want that make you want to rip your ears off. You know, it's not harsh and or, or too muddy or that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I do I do know people that have like asked me about that. Like, you know, if it's going to be on the radio, well, what happens like after the fact, you know, is there a way to prepare? But it's sort of I think it's almost like thinking about it. Like when you're sending a mix to a mastering engineer to some degree, too, you know, where it's like the more dynamics you have in it, the the better off a mastering engineer, an engineer can be. And, you know, it's same with like even sending your music to Spotify or something like that. It's like, yeah, like they, they adjust your signal when it gets there. So if you have something that's more dynamic, you can it often works better with those algorithms that, you know, modify yeah. your sound. So yeah, being at yeah. least aware of that stuff is important and, and you know, just still just trying to make the best sounding mix you can possibly make something that sounds clear and balanced and exciting. Right. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about was in regards to the BBC live lounge sessions that you got to work on. Mm. Uh, Cause you did a lot of those as well. And a lot of those are done all off the floor, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's amazing. And it's often, it looks like it's a relatively small space from a lot of the videos that I've seen as well, right? Yes. It, it's a different space now to what it was when I did it. Uh, it was, a, uh, it was at times an even smaller space. It was actually a corridor. Oh, wow. <laughs> in, in the studios, uh, Radio 1 uh, was in a different studio to what it's in these days. So um, we would just take a trip up the road and walk into the studios and the live lounge was literally a corridor between two studios. It was literally the lounge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. And, you know, it was very much uh, a setup with um, just a handful of basic outboard, really. A really well-known consumer mixing desk, something like The Ghost or something like that it was. Can you remember that? Like a Soundcraft? Yeah, yeah. It was that, that kind of level mixing desk. And the equipment changed over the years because uh, a lot of things happened whilst I was there with regard to the equipment and going digital wherever possible. So, um, yeah, the main live lounge was a corridor. 
That's awesome. <laughs> and I, who did? I, I remember there were so many bands. I can't possibly remember all of them, but. I, I had it was really great I, I don't know how they felt about it you know they were coming in to the uh, one of the largest radio networks in the country and um, they, there they were offloading equipment in this corridor uh, <laughs> but you know we were the producers would always always communicate the reality of the live lounge and request acoustic equipment um, wherever possible but yet bands certain you know a number of bands would still turn up with their full <laughs> tour rig you know uh so it did get really loud in there uh not so much for us we were fine we were in another room yeah but if yeah it was but it was a real kind of uh lash up i can't the only way i can describe it it was it was an adventure every time we did one really i bet yeah, it's funny because when you when you listen to those recordings, they're so well done. So I can I can understand why people might think that, like, you know, it is like this big pro space because it yeah. always does turn out really, really well. But but I guess if you also pay attention to what you're what you hear on those videos, it's all it tends to be very stripped back usually. So, yeah. And that's why. Yeah. yeah. And that's why. I mean, it, we did. That was the earliest part of my career with the BBC. The live lounge was literally a corridor. And then they decided that, you know, we had a spare studio at Maida Vale. There were several studios at Maida Vale that were closed down because they just weren't cost effective to keep open um, and run. You know, the BBC is a public service uh, network, so the money wasn't um, flowing in as if it were a commercial setup. So... Um, what they decided to do was to reintroduce one of the studios in Maidvale as as the new live lounge, which is where I did a lot of work. So it was a much better space, still a small studio by, you know, any stretch of the imagination, but it was acoustically treated. We'd got professional equipment there um, and it was nicer for the artists as well. They'd got spaces that they could go to and relax in. Um, so... So that was great. And it, it was still a Soundcraft ghost, uh, you know, mixing desk with drama compressors. And uh, I think we had some of that, the purple-faced Yuri kind of copies. I can't remember. MC. Oh, like the purple 1176s? Yeah. Um, and, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill effects, lexicon effects and things like that. Um, typical of what you'd see in a home studio, really. But that's what we were doing um you know, live lounges with. That, that's very cool. I imagine that because you were working in such small spaces, even when you moved to the bigger space, I'm sure it was still an issue. Like, I, I'm sure bleed was constantly something that you guys would, would battle with, right? Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, I don't remember it being a big, big problem, though. Um, because... You know, you're usually still dealing with a drum kit of some sort, um, albeit it might be acoustic guitars and it might be, um, you know, an electric piano of some some description and a vocalist. But um, bleed in the sense of what headphone bleed or as in mic spill? I would just think mic, mic spill. If you have all these instruments yeah. in a small room, you're probably going to get a lot of spill over into the yes. mics. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I get where you're coming from now. So... 
yeah, you just got to embrace that. You know, you've got to use that. Don't, we, we, there was no way that we that we didn't make any attempt to... Obviously, you're aware of if you're really, like, over-compressing something and that's bringing up the room in a big way, then, you know, you've, you've got to be across that. Yeah. But, but no, we would we would just go with it. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask if you guys did anything to kind of... Uh, no. And it was that. usually the, an SM58 for the vocalist, you know, and we just you just place place the people in the room so that you know you can really utilize the polar pattern of the microphone to reject spill like much like a live yeah. session a live uh stage performance for sure and, and that's what i was curious about like i know a lot of people that do really believe in the idea because there, there's, there's always those two schools of thought when it comes to recording right there's the people that want to record everything live off the floor and then there's the people who track everything individually and Oftentimes, space is is one of the biggest factors in determining whether you're going to do one or the other. But but there are a lot of people that really do believe that there's like the magic to recording live off the floor. And a lot of people, especially in the home studio market, are working in very small rooms. So, you know, when it comes to preparing for for dealing with bleed, that kind of thing, you know, what are some of your tips there to help people control it a little bit more? Um, I would I guess it would be really, as I just mentioned, taking advantage getting to know your microphones and the polar patterns uh you know don't go using omni <laughs> and um get basically f- have everybody facing each other almost in, like in a circle so you're all got eye contact with each other and therefore then all the microphones are all going to be uh the spill is naturally should be to the back of the microphone and then i would suggest close micing um you know, as close as you can get away with. Um, using dynamic vocal mic as well, that really helps in that situation. Uh, condenser mic is going to be so much more, it's, there's so much more sensitivity and they pick up uh, so much more background noise. So a dynamic mic uh, in any of those situations would work really well. You know, like SM57s on the guitar cabs, on the drum on the snares. You often see a lot of SM7Bs for vocal mics. That kind yes, of yeah, yeah. That that kind of thing. Just, just you know, think about the tools and, and pick the best tools for the job. Yeah. Um, but it, there's no reason why, you know, you can't get a good result um, with a little bit of consideration and just, you know, do a little bit of research and try things out, see what works. Of course, you've got the baffles, you know, the um, gobos, you, if you can... Uh, make some of those they're quite easy to make if if you're handy like that so you can move those around to kind of partition off the drums use blankets over the drums um of the kick drum um uh yeah and you can get the, like i said the gobos the half-sized ones that just come up to sort of your waist height they're great for just putting around a guitar cab mm-hmm. um yeah those are great tips for sure yeah that should that should all work those are great tips i like that and i I think you know it is often a matter of just it's it's those little details like positioning that go a long long way and you know how you said like have everyone in a circle have you know be using the uh the back of the mics and consider the rejection that you get out of those things because so many people are just so focused on like where do i put the mic on the instrument and like they're thinking just like from what's in front of the capsule and not what's behind and and there's a lot of power to 
understanding yeah. the, the, what goes on behind the microphone as well and yeah. how, how yeah. that makes a big impact yeah that's awesome um, another thing I was curious to know about when it came to those live lounge uh, recordings was that it seemed like the mixing side of things is very, very fast and that you pretty much only get one shot to do it. And it, it is it's live, right? Like, were you guys editing anything after the fact or was it legitimately live? No, no it's, it's live. I mean, some some were pre-recorded, uh, but just a small percentage, really, just because of the artist's uh, commitments. Um, you know, they might be wanting to promote their latest release, but, uh, you know, our calendars didn't line up. So they would come in and we would just do a pre-record for those days. But there was no editing, still no editing done. It, yeah. it was just recorded live. That, that's that's it. Uh, and so, yeah, it's certainly developed my workflow, having to work to a time constraint and... Uh, you know, having to make decisions on the fly and go with them, uh, which is something I'm trying to get across to people. It, now, you see, people have got the luxury of time, um, usually, and that's where you can end up going down all sorts of rabbit holes. And, you know, your recording session can take a lot longer than you thought, you know, then you want everything to be perfect. Doesn't sound quite right, so we'll go, oh, well, we'll record it again next weekend, you know, and and it's just never ending. And I think there's a lot to be said for just making a decision and sticking with it because um, you might surprise yourself what you can actually achieve with what you think might not, with something that might not sound that great initially. You might surprise yourself. Sure, if you, you know, have a play around with it after the fact, and if you're really not happy with it and you're not liking the sound of it and you think you can improve it, then, yeah, go ahead. Mm. But in terms of your question and asking about the live lounge and those recordings, yeah, that's just how they were. We had a little bit of um, uh, rehearsal time. Yeah, I was curious about that. S yeah, I mean, uh, I, we tend to, I think it was about 11 o'clock in the morning would be when the live lounges would be broadcast. So we might have load-in time of about nine o'clock in the morning, maybe. Plus, don't forget as well, the artists aren't used to working at that time in the morning. So they need a little bit of kind of coaxing. And they need to wake up and sober up. They need to wake up, drink lots of water and get the voice going. So, um, you know, they need it to, to, to get the, uh, the vocal cords active. And uh, we needed it just to get some settings dialed in on on our on the desk um but yeah once we went live we went live and then uh, that was it so would you guys typically kind of do a couple quick run-throughs just to kind of create like a, a bit of a rough mix before you actually went to air yes yes that was that's exactly what we did we just you know it would be more than a couple of quick run-throughs you know um it would Generally, it was two songs they'd do, you see. So one would be one of their own uh, um, uh, songs and then there would be a cover. They'd choose a cover to do in their own particular style, which was always great, particularly if they did come in with acoustic instruments and they'd done their own interpretation. Uh, they were always fun. Um, so we'd... Yeah, the, the songs would get a good a good airing. They would certainly get run through several times and then 
you know, we wanted to make sure the artists were happy with the headphones. That was really important. Um, and we obviously, as I say, wanted to get just a rough mix set up on the desk, a starting point. You know, we know where they want to go. You know, we've listened to the song, but then we'd set, just get ready for the top of the of the song so that uh, we're ready. And then we, you know, you just mix it live. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that that is uh, pretty nerve wracking, but at the same time, very satisfying yeah. when you pull it off, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember doing, when I did um, Corinne Bailey Ray uh, in the live lounge, um, we used to rely, particularly for vocalists, we would rely a lot on compression and, and a good amount of compression. So when she said, I don't like compression, please don't use any compression on my voice. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, really? You are joking. Yeah. No, I don't I don't like to hear the compression because it affected her. She's reacting to what she's hearing in the headphones. She's reacting to her performance. And if you're using a compressor and squashing it, squashing the dynamics out of it, um, she's only trying to gonna then wants to sing louder to get the dynamics and it's not happening and it and she had been around long enough at that point to know that she didn't like a lot of compression and enough to say to um sound engineers at various radio stations i'm sure to make sure that they did they knew that this wasn't going to be so i mean i don't think i did anything I didn't do any trick or anything. I just didn't use a lot of compression on her. And I, what I had to do was ride it on the fader on the desk. Uh, but because we'd had all those run throughs, I was, I'd, you know, I was prepared to a point and knew where she was going to be going for it. Yeah. And of course, once they're live on air, they always give it more than they did in rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, you know, you kind of factor that in as well. Just pull everything down, like, a, you know, 6 dB or so on the board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I love that. And I, yeah, I think that that's, for someone like her to be aware of uh, how important that is to her headphone mix, I think is, is very impressive. Um, yeah. And it brings up a really good question, like uh, something that I'm very curious to know about, like when it comes to creating great headphone mixes, you know, what in your experience does that entail? Cause I'm sure, you know, different instruments. I always find like drummers love to have crap done of click track or whatever, you know, it's like yeah, blasting yeah. their ears off, but like, it seems like different instruments require different mixes generally. Mm, um, yeah. So what, what advice would you have for that? Um, I, I would say that wherever possible, if you can facilitate the musicians so that they've got their own headphone mix, rather than having to share it with another. Um, you know, if you've not got much in the way of equipment, you might be tempted to bus or sum two musicians together. Like, you know, if you've got, uh, I, you know, a couple of similar sounding instruments, you may be tempted to do that. But I would say, if at all possible, try to get each uh, musician their own headphone mix. Even a mono, yeah, just a mono one is fine, except for the drummer. Because um, everybody, you know, that's what we used to do at Made Avail. The drum headphone mix was always on the stereo bus um, and everybody else was was on a mono, on a mono uh, bus. Um, and that's all, that they, that's all that they ever needed. 
we had headphone boxes that where um i tell a lie you know we used to uh pan uh the feeds the auxiliaries we used to pan them at the desk to be able to send different things to different channels as well so um but yeah i would just say obviously um just have some basic effects on hands as on hand as well just a reverb uh reverb always makes things sound better so just a little bit of reverb on the vo- for the vocalist obviously and then a little you know if the guitarist wants it i think it actually it just comes down to communication it's just talking with the musicians and asking what they want to hear and uh, you know what they're hearing do they like it is it working for them and f- from my experience that you know they seem to be really happy with the basic of setups so and to, they just want to hear themselves um so i i think it's just communication and giving them what they want if it's at all possible for sure yeah it's almost like if you can at least provide just like a kind of a, a standard mix for everyone to go off of and then like boost their own instrument that kind of thing yeah, usually that that's, that's usually it. all they need because they need to be able to just they, they're not going to be trying to they don't they shouldn't be trying to hear their own instrument in the mix like you know struggling yeah. to figure that out it should be something that's obvious and it feels natural and you know when they yeah. when they play a chord they they know that that's their chord and not someone else yes you know? yes that kind of thing yeah yes i think that's really important i, I do think headphone mixes is, is a really under discussed topic that when it comes to mm being in the studio and getting great performances like headphone mixes are very important for that because as you said with like the Korean uh Bailey Ray thing it's like if you if you get that if you if you had compressed her mix she would have she would have had a harder time singing and and nailing yeah. the performance and not and it wouldn't have sounded as good and at the end of the day it's you're trying to capture a performance and you want for the artist you want them to be happy and you want them to give their best performance. And so as an engineer, it's your job to facilitate that um, because we just want to hear great music, you know, and and to be, can you imagine, you know, being an engineer at, at a particular point in history and you were the engineer on that session kind of thing. And uh, it was all because you'd been really mindful of making sure the artist was happy and hearing what they needed to hear to produce that performance. Of course. That'd be awesome. Yeah, of course, of course. Have you found that your experience in doing these live mixes has made you a faster engineer in the studio? Or do you prefer to take your time when you when you have that luxury? I, d- I do like to take my time, but I do like to make decisions quickly because I think that's where, I think that's where you're at your most creative. I think if you let those moments just disappear by overanalyzing them, um, or second guessing them, I think that's a mistake because that's your instinct. That's your as a listener, you've been listening to music since you know probably the day you were born. So you are an expert listener at music. You you know what a normal mix sounds like, what a radio ready mix sounds like. You know it. So use that inbuilt. Uh, instinct that you've got for what sounds right in terms of tone and level and then also grab those opportunities where you get an idea pop into your head as well at that point that's your instinct talking to you as well and whether you can 
act on it there and then, that's great. But if you can't and you want to come back to it, then just have a notepad, either digital or, you know, a little uh, a little notepad on your desk. Just jot the idea down. And then I, I just think it's so important to capture those moments because that's creativity. Uh, that's it working in you. So you, it's really important to capture that. Um, so mixing quickly is very different from making decisions quickly. I think, um, you know, when, you've, when you're used to making decisions and you can stand by your decisions and you're reasoning for them, then the mix will automatically happen quicker anyway. But to give you some context, I also like to take breaks and I like to leave things, I like to leave things overnight and come back to them in the morning to get true perspective back again. Because it's a very fleeting thing. When you've been listening to the same song over and over and over, or the same snare drum over and over and over while you've been trying to EQ it and get some ringing out of it or to get some tone out of it that you don't like, you just lose perspective. So it's really important to take breaks and to keep moving through a mix, move on to the next thing. Don't get bogged down um, in a problem for too long. I mean, I would go so far as to say, time yourself, you know, have a have a kitchen timer on your desk or something with uh, five minutes or three minutes or something and just just tap it and go, right, for the next three minutes, I'm going to work on this snare EQ. And then when it goes off, right, back out solo, get on with the drum mix. Because what happens is as the mix develops and more elements come in and you EQ those elements that original problem might not be a problem anymore in the final mix. So don't get bogged down and just keep keep moving and uh, just make decisions faster. That's, I love that. That's my... <laughs> I love that. I, I think it's really important to to place those restrictions on yourself. Like, I like that idea of like, you know, just give yourself five minutes to work on the snare drum, that kind of thing. Because yeah. it's almost like when you when you force yourself to work faster... It is more of that um, that internal guide that you had mentioned earlier. You know, it's like your your gut is telling you this is what music sounds like. I know it, so I'm going to just get it as close as I can to that immediately. And yes. it's it's always like after the fact that you're just like, oh, maybe I need to like get surgical with this and that. And it's like then you've kind of lost you've lost the the big picture of it. You know, um, and. Uh, yeah, I remember even like when I was first learning this stuff, one of my mentors basically was like, OK, cool. Like you've got a big mix to do here and here is like two hours. That's all you've got. Just get it done. Right. And, yeah. and I remember just being like, how how do I do this in two hours? But when you force yourself to do it, it's amazing what you can do. Uh, you know, I've told people uh, I've coached students and told them, like, do a mix in half hour. And it's like, how, yeah. you know, but but it's yeah. amazing the results that people get because yeah. they think quicker and they think big picture. And, um, it, you know, it may not be a perfect mix, but it's often better than, you know, had they spent a lot of time overanalyzing and undoing a lot of their hard work that they did in the earlier stages and all that kind of stuff. Right. Just as long as you care, the vocals, the kick and the snare. I think that's probably. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean, but that but that's a perfect example of like having that internal um, 
that internal reference of what a good mix sounds like, you know, like the fact that you can easily identify these are the most important things. It's like if you know that stuff, you can make that happen right away, whether it's with, you know, just go to volume first, you know, and just like if you can make that balance and all of a sudden you're way closer than, you know, had yes. you spent so much time EQing and compressing and multiband but this and that, you know, it's like, yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of the times it's just the big picture things that that uh, are a lot easier to just dial in really quick. Yes. Yeah. It's that. Pareto's principle, isn't it? The 80-20 rule? Yes. Um, what is it? 20% of your actions equals 80% of the results or something? Yes. So just, uh, I never can never say that the right way around, so I may have got that completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, no, I always get confused too, but no, you did it. You, you got it. You got it right. Um, you know, you can tackle some, the, the main elements of your mix is just by a few small moves, really. Levels, EQ, uh uh, dynamics, dynamic control, that's, you know, a bit of effects. That's it, really. Once you can kind of get those dialed in in a big picture fashion, then you can go in and start to um, go finer if you really want to go into some finer detail. For sure. Which you will need, which you will need to, uh, particularly to with EQ, to get, if you, if you want a clean sounding mix, then, you, you know, you need to learn how to use EQ. Um. But um, but yeah, you know, I think it's weird, isn't it? When when you start to mix, it come, you think, wow, this is coming together really quickly. I'm really happy with this. And then then you start to take a few more listens. And then for me, I start to listen to then reference tracks and to see, compare it to other mix, commercial mixers, uh, particularly the ones that the clients have uh, suggested that they what they'd like me to head in the direction of. And then you can kind of start to to move it, manipulate it a bit. Um, I do like to listen to the reference track fairly early on, just so that I'm not going down the completely wrong, <laughs> the wrong direction. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, I don't want to go down completely the wrong direction. I have to unpick everything and start again. Um, but yeah, I, in terms of time for mixing, I guess uh, I. When I'm booking it in the calendar to mix a single, I usually give myself two days, and then maybe the 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 third day morning to have a last listen, and before I send it to the client. But those two days include, you know, quite a few breaks. They include probably finishing. I think I like to do it in like four hour chunks or. You know, I'll have a few breaks in that four-hour chunk, but I do like to take a big break after four hours. So that sits nicely at lunchtime and then at about four o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. And I'd just like to stop then because I know my ears are tired. I know I've lost perspective. And so I'm just going to go to bed and, and sleep on it and then I'll come back to it in the morning and have another listen and go from there. And day one is usually just prepping the mix anyway mm -hmm. it's just getting the set getting importing the tracks um importing my template making sure the tracks all look right sound right you know they're named right they're, they fit my template they're all colored correctly they're all going through the right group buses so everything's rooted how i like it to be rooted uh and then i'll fix things on that day one as well so i'll f you know the phase on the drums uh, the phase on, if I've got more than one bass track, the phase on the bass. 
uh, and any multi-miked instrument, any stereo instruments that have been using two microphones or, you know, then I like to check, make sure they're in phase. Any edits, um, although there's usually, uh, really, when I'm talking edits, really I'm talking about vocal edits, so breaths and lip smacks, um, just to make sure that they're not too loud. Tom, uh, you know, the in-between cut out the tom hits sometimes i do i would say more i usually do that but i will have a listen first because it depends you know if you've been given room mics or not uh it depends what the overheads sound like so if i feel as though i want more ambience around the drums then i'll keep the the in between tom hits that spill i'll keep that i might manipulate it and make it a bit quieter but i won't lose it completely um, and so that is all kind of like day one. So it's so it's really all just a preparation day. Yeah, and I just take my time with it, you know. Uh, and then day two is the mix. I'll sit down in the morning, and it's what it's, that's doing is just separating your your brain, your mindset, it, um, or the two halves of your brain, left brain, right brain. You know, I'm using uh, again. I can never remember which side of the brain does what, <laughs> but. I'm keeping all those kind of analytical, mathematical decisions to one day. Um, And then I'm using the second day for all the creativity and the big picture thinking, um, the emotional thinking, the mood, uh, you know, and and I think your brain operates more efficiently like that. 100%. I agree with that. So... So that's day two. And then that's why then I don't like to send a mix at the end of the day. No, I have done it, but no matter how, really, <laughs> you really should wait till the following morning. Um, you, I've sat here on, an, on, an, on the evening and thought, oh, that sounds great. I'm really excited about it. I want to send it off now. Uh, and then I've come back to it in the morning and thought, oh, my God, that snare is so loud. I'm so glad I didn't send that <laughs> last night. So yeah, the following, the third day, the, the morning of the third day, that's that's when I do all those, the very final polishing and send. I love that you compartmentalize things like that. And that's exactly how I, I feel I work myself because, yeah, it's like when when you're actually in the mixing stage, you, you don't want to have to be making decisions you, like like a, a ton of decisions. You don't want to have to stop what you're doing and keep and like lose that momentum or any of that kind of stuff. It's like you want to just have like clear vision of what that end result is supposed to sound like and you just make it happen or you or you like can just be in your creative creative mindset and just get it done but if you have to deal with all those edits or like DSing things or all that kind of stuff like you mentioned that you do in your prep stage it's like those things will always take you out of that that zone and it's going to slow you down it's going to make you lose your perspective a lot easier so it's great to really compartmentalize those different stages so that you have that clarity you have that vision you can just tackle it and get it done a lot quicker. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Um, at the beginning, you had mentioned when you were telling us your story of how you got to where you are, you did mention that you had at one point taken a break in your career and mm. and that you were <laughs> feeling a little bit burnt out at that point. Um, mm. So what's, adv- what's some advice that you would give to people who are listening to this who might be feeling similar stress or feelings about that? Like maybe that are, you know, debating whether they should get out or um, that kind of thing. Like what advice would you give to people in that sort of situation? I think it's uh, to take some time to really 
uh, think about how you're feeling about the whole thing. Whether it, whether what it is that's causing the burnout is it the sheer number of hours you're working? Is it the time of day that you're working? Is it you're not getting enough sleep? And then I suppose a big question is: Do you really want to do this anymore? That's a that's a tough question for people to ask themselves, but it's so necessary, and, yeah. and it really can light a fire under you when you when you have to yes. answer that question. Yeah, because you go into it these things you and you're so excited, thrilled. You've got your dream job, and then it doesn't quite work out how you'd expected, or certain things start to become an issue, and so. Yeah, it for me, for example, with the BBC, it was I had a long commute to get there and back from Basingstoke to London on the busiest motorways in the country. Uh, and I was working all different hours, different shifts. BBC were great about that, though. You, were, you would always be, uh, you know, you'd never be put on weird back to back shifts or anything. Um, and you'd get days off, plenty of days off in between, anything like that. But nevertheless, having to commute to London on a motorbike, which is what I did, because it was the cheapest way for me to get into London and back every day, on on these two busy motorways, and then London, central London itself, in all weathers. Uh, and, you, you know, I don't know if you've been to the UK, but it rains here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know that that takes its toll of course uh that then coupled with you know moving studios which is a bit uncomfortable for me anyway the fear of of falling off air uh, and then the the feeling that i just perhaps wasn't cut out for it i wasn't good enough when i looked at all my peers and i thought they were all amazing engineers and I just thought how does he know that and how do they know how to do that and I just thought am, am I cut out for it and and I didn't I didn't know it then and it was only later that I knew that that was imposter syndrome but but back in 2008 2009 I didn't I don't even know if people were talking about imposter syndrome then um but I just took it to be I did, wasn't enjoying it anymore uh, I was frightened of being found out of being as being a fake that I didn't know what I was doing, getting caught. What would people think of me? That I wasn't a particular. You know, what's happened to her? She's gone right downhill. She used to be really good, and then she's lost her. You know, and all this catastrophized going on in my brain. You always make it so much worse than it actually is, right? Goodness. So my reaction to that. I stuck it for probably another 12 months, but but I, in the end, the way I deal with trauma or stress is to take myself out of the situation, take it away. That's that's the only way I know how to handle it. So I left, um, much to the surprise of everybody, and uh, went into brewing, which was my hobby. <laughs> <laughs> that was my hobby uh, that I used to help me get over my you know that was how I got out of my head uh as a, as a sound engineer uh to brew beer 
Uh, and then, yeah, if you, you may have, may or may not have heard my story before. And then I, I, you know, I went and did that for six, seven years, something like that. Did all the technical exams. Uh, I became a head brewer. Uh, this is all craft ale that we're talking about, you know. Um, and uh, I realised that I wasn't getting my... Um, it just wasn't answering the questions. It just wasn't helping me in any way. I was, I, again, it was that first initial, oh, this is great fun. Oh, it's so relaxing. You know, I've all that, all those worries I had in the BBC have gone. This is going to be great. Um, but in the end, I it was audio, it's music I wanted to work with. I always have had since I was a young child. So I had to go back to it. But I had to get over some issues uh, that I I picked up at the BBC, or because of leaving the BBC, the regret, the um, the, the whole imposter syndrome mm. thing. So I had to go and get some um, sort of some therapy, some hypnotherapy, which to my surprise actually worked. Uh, four months later, I was suddenly thinking, oh, listening to music and thinking, oh, that kick drum, that's sounding. Oh, I'd, I'd mix that in a completely different way. And that just hit me like a bolt of bolt of lightning. It was amazing. Because up until that point, from leaving the BBC in 2009 to wanting to get back into music after doing some hypnotherapy in 2013, 2014, I'd not listened to music. I completely just couldn't listen to music. It was too... It was just instant regret, mm-hmm. um, sadness. Any music I listened, I couldn't listen to any of my favourite albums anymore. I didn't enjoy them. And then, I, you know, it's a sign, isn't it? It's just you know what you're supposed to be doing in life. And um, I took that as a sign, got some help. And then, yeah, 2014, got back into mixing, which was completely different to how I'd left it in 2008, 2009. Um because uh, everybody was doing it at home in the in the computer, and, and at the BBC we didn't really mix on computers. Computers were there. We had uh, DAWs. We used uh, Sadie, which is more of a mastering DAW, but that's what was installed all over the BBC when I was there, and it was just really a glorified DAT machine. And we would just mix down onto that, onto a stereo track, do any edits that needed to be done, do a fade in, fade out, make a CD to take to send to the production to the producer of the radio show, and then to give to the band to take home. So that was my extent of working on a digital audio workstation at that point. Other than for editing speech, which I used to do a lot of for. The, the radio networks, Radio 2, any any speech on, on the radio pre-recorded needs editing. I used to do a lot on Radio 4, which um, is all speech. So I was great at editing speech and interviews, <laughs> uh, but, not, but music, I'd done very little of it um, because I didn't do it at home. Some, some guys did. They, would, they were producers as well. They did their own music, but I, I, I didn't. I started... I, I, I I always enjoyed more the engineering side of it than the than being a musician because I wasn't much good. <laughs> so um, uh, 
yeah, I, that's when I used to brew beer instead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now that you're back into this, what are some of the ways that you manage your time better now so that you, you don't feel that burnout as much? Um, now I, uh, very blessed, I guess, to say that I don't take on clients that I don't, don't want to work with. And that sounds a bit harsh, but I, what I mean by that is I can pick and choose the artists I work with. And I really want to work with artists that I find exciting and interesting and are doing something different or have got a really good work ethic um, and have put a lot of time and effort into the recording of their tracks. Then, uh, then yeah, I'll, I'll consider that. But I haven't been taking on new clients for some time now because I'm, I'm, I've got more into the educational content and creating courses for people so that they can mix it for themselves and get pro results at home. So that has been my main focus, really, certainly for the last 12 months. Um, I tried to do it uh, like two years ago. I tried to do both YouTube and it's hard to do clients. And I, 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 you know, YouTube was just constantly having to take a back seat because, you know, uh, you mix a single as we just discussed, you know, it's two and a half, three days and you wait for the client to come back. Could be the next day, could be in a week's time. <laughs> you know, my schedule was all over the place. So I couldn't plan anything. And then an album, that was a month of my time gone with, you know, factoring in revisions and mm -hmm. uh, and mastering as well. And so I, I made the decision a year ago to really focus on the YouTube content. The intention being to do a video a week. But even that is hard. <laughs> so I'm doing one about once a fortnight now um, because I don't want, I want the videos to be quality. I don't want them to be just something that, you know, everybody knows or is of no value. Um, I, I want them to actually teach people something and be able to communicate and connect with people in that way. So I do try and put a little bit more effort in. And so that does result in a video of Fortnite. Um, and I've been blown away by uh, the positive comments I've been getting, the support. Uh, so that just keeps me going. I really enjoy doing it. And I'm having to learn, you know, a whole new side of, uh, you, you know, Video editing really is the is the whole is the new thing that I'm learning and how to create better looking videos. It keeps it fun. It keeps it fun and interesting. And I'm sure I'm sure that you're finding as you're teaching this stuff. I, at least I found this with my own experience. Um, I found that it forced me to become a better engineer because I was really breaking down my own processes. Yes. And, and when you start to actually think about like, oh, is this the best way to do this, or is there a faster way, a better way? Uh, you're like, oh, you start to, you start to become faster and more confident in yourself because you've now actually given it the thought that you maybe you hadn't before, right? A lot of yes, those second yeah. nature tasks become things that you have to actually um, break down into and, and actually identify like what are those steps, you know? Yes, that's it. it yeah, that that it, it's really it's true what they say that um, teaching is the best way to learn. So. Um, you know, and oftentimes I've chosen subjects myself that I thought, oh, I could I could do with a bit of a brush up on this myself. You know, mm -hmm. I'll do a video on that this week. So, uh, you know, it's great because I love to learn. Uh, 
And I love finding out how other people learn so that I can teach better. Of course. Um, because, yeah, I've never taught before doing the YouTube channel. So, I, you know, I wanted to be good at that and do the best I could do at that. So that's why, I, you know, the YouTube, channels is a bit, YouTube channel is a bit of um, work in progress in that I'm just learning what is resonating with people, what they like, what they don't like. Um, I'm running with it, really. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you've been working on amazing stuff. I've seen your videos and they're definitely, I could tell you put a lot of effort into them to make sure that they are uh, done right. And uh, I think there's a lot for people to take out of it, you know? You know, I think I think both you and I, we both share this mutual um, mutual goal of just like helping people and seeing results and actually getting, you know, getting their music out there, feeling happy about it, proud of it. And, uh, you know, you're definitely doing a great job with all that stuff. So, you know, thank you. Keep, keep up thank the great you. work. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. If people want to follow you online and, and learn more about you and maybe even work with you, if, if you if you if they do have something that's interesting and fun that you might want to work on, uh, what are the best places for them to go to to, to learn more? Uh, yeah, if you want to learn from me, then the best place would be to go to YouTube and look for Simply Mixing. That's my channel. Um, I've got uh, about 30 videos on there, I think, at the moment that are probably aimed more at the beginner but there's definitely more intermediate topics on there as well and then um if you want to work with me professionally as a as a mix engineer then you can find my website which is musicmixpro.co.uk but as we said earlier in the interview I'm not really taking on new clients at the moment because I've got so much stacked up to do this year um but if you think you've got something that I might be interested in, please get in touch. We can have a chat. Um, and then, yeah, then I've got simplymixing.com, which is the website for the Simply Mixing channel. Um, also, if you're interested in learning more from me, then I've just released some courses on the Pro Mix Academy website. And there are three courses and they're all aimed at beginners and they they are for EQ, compression and effects. And it's really going back to the fundamentals, the basics, start from the ground up so that you can, you know, use these uh, tools to the best uh, of your ability, understand why things are happening rather than just looking for how to do something. If you can understand why and how things work in the background, uh, then you can make your own informed decisions rather than following someone's how-to video on YouTube, which <laughs> might, well, probably won't work for your mix and your tracks because that would be, be amazing if it did. But um, Of course, those foundations are, or the fundamentals are definitely the important thing you have to grasp. There's yes, no, there's no yes. secret trick to mixing, you know, and, no. it's, and it's like, chances are you probably already know the tools that you need to use and you've probably learned them at some point, but it's like going deeper on those basic tools is often the, the, the thing you need to master. And with yes. that, you will get those radio ready mixes, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome, Sarah. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here today. And I, I think that you just shared so much great in- information. Um, it was awesome to hear about the, like the, the radio side of things and where you're, sh- where you've shifted your business to now and, and just a lot of your, your philosophies and uh, processes. And I, I think it's going to be super helpful for people. Great. Thank you. Yeah. It's been great to, uh, to chat with you today. Um, I say, I, we, we were talking before we pressed record, weren't we, that we were aware, I was certainly aware of you and the work you were doing, but we hadn't actually connected, even though we'd kind of skimmed close in a couple of uh, areas. Yeah. But um, no, it's great uh, to, to, to meet you and to chat with you like we have done today. It's been uh, good fun. Awesome. We'll have to have you back. So that was my interview with Sarah Carter, and I thought she gave us a lot of great insight into what it was like to work in the BBC and to be doing all of those live lounge recordings. And I love all of the little topics that we got into regarding things like how to work comfortably and why that's so important or why creating headphone mixes can make a really big difference in terms of the performances that you capture. And I love the story that she shared about Kareen Bailey Ray and how she knew that compression would mess up her headphones and result in a poor performance. Um, I just thought that was really fascinating. And I think it's a really important thing to understand because headphone mixes can go a really long way as far as getting the best performance. And if you're not considering how comfortable your musicians are, it can drastically affect the performances that you capture. So I thought that was really interesting. I love the topic about imposter syndrome and how she approached that, because I think that that's something that's very real. A lot of people struggle with that, myself included. We, We all go through it at some point. So it's really important for those stories to be shared so that people can resonate with other people and connect and learn various ways to cope with it and move beyond it. So uh, just super grateful that Sarah shared that as well. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed that interview. And I hope that you did too. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings and mixes from their home studios. And on that website, there's so many great resources designed to help make that process easy for you. One of which you're going to want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. And that is a book that I put out a few years ago that really breaks down the process of mixing and breaks it down into a very step-by-step format for you so that you know exactly what steps to take, what order to work in, what to be listening for, what to be dialing in with your settings. That way, the process becomes very easy and straightforward for you, and you're not feeling scatterbrained throughout that whole process. So definitely check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.